Morning, church. How are we today? And you're speaking for everybody. Is that how it is? Yeah. Nice to see you. We are uh, continuing in our series, uh, The Proverbial Life. We're looking this summer at uh, the book of Proverbs and other wisdom passages in the Bible to think about what this, uh, what this ideal life is like as described, a life of wisdom, not just a, a life where we know a bunch of information, but a life where we're able to take what we know and put it into practice, to live wisely. And we've been in that every week. This morning, um, we're talking about the proverbial family. So we're talking about family issues, which, you know, uh, family issues can be a little tricky, yeah? The, the family dynamics are a little tricky. My, uh, my mom and my dad and my mother-in-law, they all watch the live stream of these services from where they live in Arizona and Nevada. So for me, I gotta be really careful what I talk about. On a morning, we're talking about proverbial family, and that, my friends, is wisdom, right? It's right there. This, I'm, like a, I'm like a living example of what we're talking about. Be wise with regard to family. No, it's interesting because the book of Proverbs is really in its entirety a book that emphasizes the value of family, right? I don't know if you've thought about this, but we studied in Proverbs chapter one the fact that this is a book of collected wisdom from Solomon to his son. So there's, there's this thinking already that's kind of generational thinking. This thinking of, well, I've learned some things from God, I've learned some things from life, and I want to pass those on to the generations to come. Those first few chapters are addressed again and again to the son, right? From a father to a son. So already at the outset, the whole book of Proverbs is a picture of part of what family's all about. Passing wisdom, passing knowledge, passing sort of the learned uh, life lessons from one generation to another. And when we get to the end of the book of Proverbs, so Proverbs 31 is a, it's, it's the last chapter in the entire book. And it's an interesting chapter because if I I would guess that when Proverbs 31 came up, there were some of you, probably in particular the men in the room, who immediately went like, oh, this is the lady chapter, right? Oh, my wife's paying attention, right? There's a thing that can happen sometimes with Proverbs 31 where it's almost taken on a, um, it's almost taken on a sort of a weird attribute where people sort of consider it and think about it in terms of, well, this is a chapter for ladies, this is a, a bar, there's like a standard here set for what a godly wife is supposed to be or a wise woman is supposed to be. And so women, I, I know lots of women, in fact, even in our teaching team meeting this week, all of the women in our teaching team meeting were like, there are times in life where Proverbs 31 has actually been kind of a burden, right? It's a little bit of a, it's a, little bit of a heavy-hearted thing because you look at the standard that's described in Proverbs chapter 31, and it can be very difficult to hit that bar. And so a lot of times you carry this sense of like, well, I, I get what it's saying a godly wife is supposed to be, but I know I don't hit that mark very often. I, I want to start this morning and say that this Proverbs 31 is, is not specifically a chapter for women. In fact, the message there that we sometimes attribute for women is a message ascribed to a son, right? The whole chapter, 31, paints a picture of, of what a wise and a healthy functioning family looks like. If we look at the first verse, it says, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. So we see multiple generations here. We see King Lemuel, the king, writing something down or having his words recorded for posterity for future generations. But what he's speaking and having recorded that we have here in Proverbs 31, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what he's speaking is an oracle that his mom taught him. Now, we don't know whether that's... Um, 
whether that's something that his mom verbalized to him or whether it's something that his mom demonstrated by the way she lived or maybe it's even something his mom taught him in reverse, right? You've probably had those moments in your life where people have taught you things by being the opposite of what you want. We don't know much about King Lemuel's mother, but what we do know is that when he reflects upon wisdom and the wisdom of how to be a godly king and how to be a wise king, that he thinks of things that his mother has taught him. And so he puts pen to paper or he he speaks to a scribe and he says, these are the words of King Lemuel. I'm putting them down, but it's an oracle that my mother taught me, right? So we see generational context right there. We see familial context right there. We see a a mother to a son. Inside of Proverbs 31, we're gonna hear about husbands and wives. We're gonna hear about children. So we're not just thinking about mothers and sons. We're thinking about fathers. We're thinking about kids. We're thinking about spouses, It's a very family-centered chapter in its totality. And I want you to see that, that when we look at Proverbs 31, we're not just looking at a bullseye for ladies to try and strive for. We're looking at something that's actually very relevant to all of us, that it's very relevant to all of us. The fact that a mother would speak to a king and he would not only listen, but remember and then repeat. That's, That's valuable wisdom just in that. To be the kind of person who will listen to the generations that come before, to remember what's been said, and then to repeat those, I was reminded in my preparation of Proverbs 4.1, which says, hear, O sons of fathers, instruction, and be attentive, that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts, do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. There's a great pattern in the book of Proverbs of not only learning wisdom, implementing wisdom, but then recognizing the value and the importance of passing wisdom along. And we see that uh, very beautifully encapsulated in Proverbs chapter 31. The first part of the chapter, the first nine verses, are instruction uh, for the king, a, a godly and a wise king, to avoid a couple of things, right? The beginning of the chapter is basically saying, hey, if you want to lead well, if you want to set your mind and your heart, your hands to the things that God has called you to as a king, there are some things that you want to watch out for. So there's a couple of warnings. Let's read them together. It says in verse 2 of Proverbs 31, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. There's a warning here. The the mother is saying to the son, and then the son is saying to future generations, the king has to be careful that he doesn't get distracted by sexual impropriety, sexual misconduct, right? Sexual immorality, that he doesn't go chasing after women. They're gonna distract him from the the, the calling of leadership and authority. There's also a call here that the person not be distracted, the king not be distracted by wine or strong drink because it clouds your vision and distracts you again, calls you away from the very things that as a king or a leader, you've been called to, to do, to care for the needs of the poor and those who are impoverished, those who are are disenfranchised, right? Now, I, I, I racked my brain, and I racked my brain, and I tried to think of any sort of modern example I could give you about a leader who might be distracted from the things at hand. I can't think of anything. Essentially, what King Lemuel's mom is saying is you don't want to get so preoccupied with making payments to all your mistresses that you can't really focus on the task at hand, right? Don't let yourself be distracted. 
Don't let yourself be distracted by these things that can draw you away. And then, King Lemuel's mother gives him the, uh, an alternative. Instead of being distracted by women or by drinking, instead of having your mind clouded, what if your family, what if your home, what if your family could become a center from which kingship or leadership or service or the responsibilities that God has called you to, what if your family could be a hub or a center from which to serve? And so then there's this, this, this description of the godly wife, right? This description of the godly wife, and that's where things get a little tricky. I, I don't want to miss reading the next part of Proverbs 31. She says, watch out for sexual impropriety, watch out for strong drink, and then in verse 8, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Don't let anything get in the way of that. And in the context of doing the things that God has called us to do, she then says, an excellent wife, verse 10, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. And here's where all of a sudden it gets a little, a little complicated. This is a, a classic passage about the godly wife, but it's not just, and this is one of the important things I want you to see in sort of the preamble this morning, this isn't just a text for women. It's certainly not a high bar to inflict guilt, shame, or discouragement to women or wives. Right? That's somehow, in the past, that's a way in which this text has been used. I myself can remember sitting down with a girl I was dating in high school, right? I remember this one time, we sort of set up a tie, I said, hey, I have something really important I need to talk with you about, and I took this girl I was dating uh, out to dinner, and we sat there, I opened up my Bible, and I said, I need, to, I need to read something to you. And I turned to Proverbs 31, right? And I read, I read her this whole thing. In all seriousness, I had a very somber tone, you know. Da, 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 here it is. She gathers flax and grain and she sews scarlet garments. And, you know, I read the whole thing. And then I was like, do you think you can be that? Right? <laughs> and she's like, well, I hope so. I want to be that. I hope I can be. And I was like, because there are areas in your life that don't align with this. You know, like I use it like, no kidding, as a way to like confront her and go, hey, if there's a future for us, you're gonna have to get your act together because this guy is looking for a Proverbs 31 woman and I will not compromise, right? And you're laughing, but I bet you that there are some of you in this room who feel that, right? Or have been made to feel that. Or maybe it's not even something someone else has spoken over you like I did with the girl. By the way, uh, we didn't date much longer, so there you go. Uh, um, maybe it's not something somebody else has spoken to. Maybe as a woman you come to this text and you go, oh, how am I going to do this, right? In our teaching team meeting this week, uh, several of the women made the point to say that this isn't one woman on one day, right? It's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of what being a wife or being a mother, being, a, being a, a woman in a family, a woman of wisdom can be. But it's, a, it's, an over, it's like a lifetime of wisdom, not necessarily one 24-hour cycle, right? But more than that, I would say this. I don't actually think that women should take this passage specifically for themselves because here's what I want you to see. Everything that is detailed as a characteristic of the wife that should be sought after has already been detailed as a characteristic of the man that should be lived out in faithfulness in the 30 chapters before this. So if you just want to just play the percentages, right? What we've got here is one part of one chapter that describes a wise woman, and what we've got is 30 and a half chapters of what a wise man should be. You know why that is? Men are knuckleheads, right? <laughs> what women get really quick, men take a long time to come around to, right? 
If you've ever led a group of college students anywhere, you know you have to say the things to the boys three times as many times you have to say them to the girls, right? There's a little piece here, but all of these characteristics, let's just do, a, just for the sake of you understanding what I mean, let's walk through it. If we look at Proverbs 31, uh, verses uh, 10 and 11, 10 and 11 says this, an excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and she will have no lack of gain. What's it talking about? Well, this woman is a woman who's trusted. She's a woman who's valued. Her opinion, her methods, her, her, the things that she's doing are trusted, right? In the family unit, she's trusted. Well, Proverbs has already said that there's value to being a person of integrity. It, it said earlier in Proverbs 3, 3, and 4, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. What's the call in Proverbs 3 and 4? Live a life of wisdom and integrity so that you will be trusted by other people. Long before the writer, Lemuel's mother, ever imparted this oracle about how a woman should be trusted, long before that, and this isn't the only passage, the book of Proverbs had collected wisdom for all of us that says we all need to be trustworthy. We all need to be integrous. We can look at the next one. Back to Proverbs chapter 31. It says in 12 through 14, she does him good. And not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from, a, from afar. Proverbs 13 verse 4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. What's it talking about? It's talking about industry. It's talking about hard work, right? In verse 15 of Proverbs chapter 31, describing the godly wife or the wise wife, it says, She rises while it is yet night, and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. What's it talking about? Well, it's talking about the fact that she's generous and sacrificial. Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25 say, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be waters. What's that talking about? Generosity and sacrifice, Right? So yes, is that what we're looking for in a godly wife? Absolutely. But long before there was ever a detail for what a godly wife should look like that talked about generosity and sacrifice, it had already called all of us to those things. You could do this with every category. If you look at verse 16, uh, if you look at verse 16 of Proverbs 31, we could do it again and again. It says, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Proverbs 19, 20 says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Listen, pay attention, be attentive, so that you'll live a wise life. These are all things that all people have been called to. What's the point? I mean, we could go on and and show that for strength in verse 17, compassion in verse 20, uh, courage and preparation in verse 21. Uh, the, the, The godly wife is instructive and kind in verse 26. We could do it for each and every one of these characteristics. There's a wealth of other Proverbs that have already affirmed these characteristics for men and women. Right? For all of us. So this isn't just a, a description of what a godly wife is. What, what is it? It's a description of what a wise person is like. Realistically, what should have happened had I understood the text well is I should have sat down with the girl I was dating in high school and said, can I read you something? I want to read you. This is out of Proverbs 31. And I should have read the text. And then I should have looked at her and said, this is what I'm trying to be for you. Right? This is a goal for me. All these things that describe what a godly woman is like God has called me to as well. It's what, it's what a godly family, it's what a wise family is structured around, right? 
all of these characteristics. And the most important of all of them we see in verse 30 of Proverbs 31. In the midst of the husband's praise for the wife, in verse 30, he says this, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. There's all kinds of great attributes in here that are descriptive and depicting what a life of wisdom is like. They're important for a healthy family, but the most important is the fear of God. And we can go all the way back to Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? The fear of the Lord is the, is the starting point, the, the relationship with God. So what are we talking about here? When we talk about uh, the proverbial family, we're talking about a family in which everybody is pursuing wisdom, in which there is a godly wife and a godly husband, in which we're all living lives of courage and strength and kindness and instruction and preparation and generosity and trust that we're instructive and kind, but most importantly, that we fear God. What we see described here is a family environment characterized by three main things. If you look at the the whole of Proverbs 31 and the description of the godly wife, recognizing that it also has to do with all of us, regardless of gender, then what you see is a family unit described by King Lemuel's mother and then repeated by King Lemuel that is characterized three ways. And these, if you're taking notes today, I want you to get these. The first thing we see in this text about this family, right, is that there is recognized worth. There's recognized worth. Not, not just that the wife recognizes the worth of the husband who sits, in, by the way, when it describes the husband's role in this case, I kind of like the sound of that. It sounds like the husband's job is just to sit somewhere. I'm really good at that, right? Really good at sitting. So if that's what's required of me, it says the husband sits in the city gates with the elders. I will say, uh, you know, sitting with the elders is not quite as fun as sitting in front of an Xbox. Ah, there's an elder jab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No? Not gonna, it's not gonna take it. I got a couple elders in here. They're not, they're frowning at me. It's fine, I'll take it. It's fine. That'll come back around probably. But there's recognized worth. There's worth both uh, recognizing the worth and when I, say, when I say recognized worth, I don't just mean, wow, it's really great to have a wife because she does all this work. Or it's really great to have a husband because of his reputation with the city leaders. It's not that kind of worth. It's that there is a recognition of the worth of individuals that each of us bring different skills and different abilities that were gifted by God in different ways, that while men and women are both created in the image of God, equally in the image of God, we're created to manifest and represent different aspects of his nature. And so there's this recognition of the fact that the husband doesn't have to do everything and the wife doesn't have to do everything, that the family unit, there's a recognition of worth that has to do with value of the person, value of who God created them to be. It's worth taking a moment to press pause and think about your own family and ask yourself whether your your current family is a place where there's recognized worth for everybody in the unit, for the children and the grandparents, for the aunts and the uncles. Do you recognize the value of each individual approach, each individual gifting? There's a mutual trust and a value there, a recognized worth. Not only do we see recognized worth in this chapter, but we also see selfless work, and those two kind of go together. When you recognize the value of the people that you're in family with, when you recognize their value and their worth, then it creates in you, it kind of becomes a catalyst to want to serve them. But when you devalue other people, when you lower the bar for what someone is worth or what they bring to the table, then all of a sudden you don't feel the, the, the impetus to want to serve other people. When there's a high value, right? When there's recognized worth in a family unit, then what follows very naturally is selfless work. This chapter describing a godly wife is mostly about selfless work, right? 
The wife is up early, she's gathering grain, she's buying a farm and she's you know, cultivating land, she's sewing garments for people so that they're covered, and not just garments, but garments that are rich and beautiful. There's a lot of selfless work described in this chapter. Where does that selfless work come from? Well, it comes from recognized worth, right? If you're having a hard time getting up the motivation to serve your family, if you're having a hard time sort of getting up the motivation to, to live a selfless life, part of the problem may be that you've devalued the people around you, raised the worth, and then all of a sudden there'll be selfless work. So we see recognized worth, we see selfless work, and thirdly what we see in Proverbs chapter 31 is loving words, right? Did that so you could kind of remember them. Recognized worth, selfless work, and loving words. You look down at what it says about the family unit in response to who this woman is. Proverbs chapter 31, look at what it says in verse 28. It says, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. The quote here that's attributed to the husband, right, this praise, is a sense of recognition, not only of the worth of the wife, not only the selfless work of the wife, but there is also this very verbal and obvious uh, admiration, right? There's this affirmation, a sense in which it's sort of made audible the praise and the love. There are loving words. Think about your family again. Think about the unit that you are in, right? Whatever that family unit looks like. And think about whether or not these three, these three things characterize your family life. Because if they don't, if you don't have these three, then it's likely that your family doesn't feel like a center from which to serve. It doesn't feel like a hub from which to be glorifying God or leaning into the duties and responsibilities, the expectations that God has called us to. If you're not currently in a family where there's recognized worth and selfless work and loving words, then you probably feel fatigued and you probably, it takes a lot of energy to try and sort of get, build up the, 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 the motivation to continue to do the work. But what Proverbs 31 is advocating, from Lemuel to the king, or from his mom to the king to future generations as he records it, is what? It's that we, would, that we would love each other, that we would serve each other, that we would value each other. That's what we see. And it isn't just one sort of biological family. There's also this, there's also this uh, legacy, right? We see multiple generations here, and that's important. I, I love what it says in Psalm chapter 71. In Psalm 71, verse 18, it says, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. I think sometimes when we think about discipleship, we, just, we, we think about discipleship in terms of self-improvement. You know what I mean? That my discipleship is just about me conforming to the image of Christ and me becoming a better Christian and me getting rid of the sin that so easily entangles but, but discipleship is not just about self-improvement, if it's about self-improvement at all. It's actually about being conformed to the image of Christ by the power of God. But, but there's also something really key and important about me discipling the people that come after me, right? Jesus was a disciple maker. He made disciples. That was his method of ministry. He gathered people around him and he discipled them. So when we say that we're followers of Jesus, it's important for us to recognize that our followership of Jesus includes generational replication. Does that make sense? That I can't just you know, look down at my navel and focus on my own growth. That I have to actively be looking for ways to impart biblical living, biblical wisdom, right? Recognized worth, 
selfless work and loving words into the lives of the next generation. It isn't just about me modifying my own life, it's about me pouring into other people. We've got, a, uh, we've got a grandparenting conference coming up in February, right, that's all about how we, how we pour into the next generation, how we love the next generation. It's gonna be an amazing conference, it's not an advertisement for that, but I would sort of like to put a little check mark in your head to say, in what ways over the last week have you imparted wisdom and knowledge and discipleship to the next generation? Your kids or somebody else's? And, and for the, even the word kids might be relative. I'm not necessarily just talking about third graders, I'm talking about 40-year-old kids, 60-year-old kids, right? In what ways are we passing this knowledge on? I love the fact that the children rise up and call her blessed, right? In Proverbs 31, that the children rise up and call her blessed. Why do they do that? Well, it's, it, t- it tells us why it happens. It says in 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Remember, the husband was there before the kids were, probably, Right? The husband was there before the kids were, so what are we talking about? We're talking about uh, loving words that are modeled to the next generation. Being an environment, uh, there's a sort of a famous verse in Proverbs 22.6 that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it, right? And that's, that's true, it's true, but listen, we're training up children all the time. The problem is we're not always training them up in the way they should go, you know what I mean? We're modeling all the time. People are watching us, not just our biological children, but people are constantly looking at us and we are modeling things and we are training them up and they will maintain those patterns. If your life is anything like me, and here I gotta be careful of the live stream, but if your life is like me, there are things that are replicated in your life, not that your parents sat you down and taught you, but that they did. Attitudes and words and actions worldviews that, that you didn't sit down and have an instructive course with your parents. They just lived a certain way and then all of a sudden you wake up and you find yourself living the same way. You know what I'm talking about? My dad insisted on joking with the people in the drive-thru at Jack in the Box, right? He just could not let us buy a cheeseburger and keep going. And I pull up to the window and I find myself harassing the people in the window at Jack in the Box with the stupidest jokes. And every time I do it, I look at my wife and I go, that's my dad, Right? His fault. If you're watching, that's you, right? <laughs> Train up a child in the way they should go. Listen, they're, they're watching all the time. Are you modeling loving words and selfless work? Right? Are you, are you modeling recognized worth in your family? Because we're training all the time. I love, I love what it says in, uh, in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18. It says, uh, discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Well, that's good advice, right? Yeah. <laughs> Discipline him. There's hope. Don't just think about murdering your kids. I think that's pretty wise. You should, somebody should sew that onto a pillow, right? Put on a pillow and set it on your couch at your house. Discipline your son, for there's worth in that. Don't just think about killing him, right? The children rise up and bless because the father has risen up and blessed, risen up and blessed, right? It's replicated. Now, the last thing I want to do this morning in the time we have, you know how on Google Earth, um, you know how on Google Earth you, you can zoom out? So like if you've been on Google Earth, you, what'd you do? The first thing you probably zoomed in on your house, right? At least that's what I did. You zoom in on your house and there it is. Maybe it's a little blurry. You kind of look at it and you go, oh, I wish I would have mowed the grass before the satellite took that picture or whatever. There's your house. And you click the little minus symbol and what happens? You zoom out, right? And now all of a sudden you can see your neighborhood. You click it again. Now you can see the city. Click it again. Now you see the, the, the whole state maybe. Zoom out. You see the country. Zoom out. There's the globe, right? And you know your house is in there somewhere. But that zooming out can be help, helpful just to get perspective. We have to do that with Proverbs 31 as well. 
Because what I want you to see here is that Proverbs 31 is not just a reminder of what a, a terrestrial sort of biological family is supposed to look like. It is that. It is that. It is telling us what a biological family can be. But I want you to hit the little minus button and boom, zoom out with me once. Because remember, at the beginning of Proverbs, it described wisdom as a lady, right? It said, Lady Wisdom stands at the street corner and she calls out, hunt for her, find her, don't be lured away by Lady Folly, right? So in some ways, the bookend of Proverbs 31, at the beginning it says, Lady Wisdom is there, she's calling out to you, go find her, it's valuable to find her. Proverbs 31 at the end is saying, marry yourself to Lady Wisdom. And it doesn't matter whether you're married or single, whether you're young or old, no matter who you are in this room, this is a reminder to us to pursue a relationship with wisdom. There's a macro view that isn't just about a biological family, it's about each and every one of us individually looking for wisdom who is described here and personified, front and back, right? Now hit that minus button with me again. We zoom out one more, guess what? It isn't just about a biological family. It's also not just about our individual pursuit of wisdom to try and couple ourselves with wisdom. If we zoom out one more, you know what we also find? Is that this is indicative and descriptive of the family of God. The family of God. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because all of these characteristics, right? Recognized worth, selfless work, loving words, these are the hallmark of what it means to be a church. These are the hallmark of what it means to be the family of God. And it doesn't matter whether you've been called to celibacy, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, if you're single, if you want to be married but you haven't yet, if your kids are alive, if you want kids and you've never had them, it doesn't matter where you find yourself on the spectrum of family biologically, you, by the nature of God's redemption, are a part of God's family, and so these characteristics are still valuable. This is the way we're meant not just to interact with our wives and our children, it's the way we're meant to interact with each other in the church. We are the family of God. Romans says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Ephesians chapter 4. I love this. Read this with me. I think we can put it on the screens. Ephesians 4. Let's look at the first seven verses. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You know what that sounds like to me? Recognize worth. That it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. It doesn't matter what you do for a living or how much money is in your bank. It doesn't matter uh, what color your skin is or how much education you have. That God is the God of us all and there is a recognized worth and value that we have to wrap our arms around in this family, right? Let's read on. Look at what it says in verse 11. He gave the apostles, that's God, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful deceitful schemes. You know what that sounds like to me? Sacrificial work. Selfless work, right? 
He's created us all for different roles and responsibilities. We don't necessarily all have the same gifts to be implemented in precisely the same ways, but we're meant to work together as a body. So we see what? We see recognized worth, we see loving work. It only makes sense, uh, or excuse me, sacrificial and selfless work. Look at verse 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know what that sounds like to me? Loving words. So as we've zoomed out, biological family, yes. Individual pursuit of wisdom, yes. Zoom out a little bit further, us as a family. All of these attributes are absolutely a part of the church being a center from which we can serve. A healthy place. We talked about speech two weeks ago and the fact that we can use our words for blessing or for curse, for life or for death. Recognized worth, selfless work, and loving words. I want you to hit that minus button with me one more time. Zoom out one last time, right? It's about the biological family. It's about our individual pursuit of wisdom. It's about the church family. And it's also about the church, as we zoom all the way out, now we got the globe view. It's about the church being the bride of Christ. That we as a church are meant to be in family with Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. John the Baptist says, I'm not the bridegroom, I'm just the one who stands to the side. Jesus is the bridegroom, right? It says in Ephesians chapter five, verse 31, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Can I tell you, in our relationship with the Lord Jesus, we're never going to have a problem with recognized worth and selfless work. There is no more selfless work than the work of Jesus for his bride and loving words. Those are never going to be at deficit in our family with Jesus. The problem is going to be our end of that. Do we, do we live a life of recognized worth and loving words and selfless work to honor Jesus who came and gave his life for us, who died in our place, who extends to us by his power and grace resurrection life? Because we aren't just meant to be a social club. We're not just meant to be a place where you can come and get your kids some training and have some food trucks on Friday nights. There is an aspect of it that is meant to be communal and social, but the but the macro picture when we zoom all the way out is that we are called to be the bride of Christ. And when the Bible describes what a godly bride looks like, she's a bride with wisdom. She's a bride with value and hard work and loving affirmation. That's who we're called to be in our relationship with Christ, in our relationship with each other, in our pursuit of wisdom personally, and in our families, in our homes, no matter what that family looks like. It could be college roommates, it could, be, it, it could be anybody, right? Your family doesn't have to look you know, like the nuclear family. It's a calling for us to live a life that's modeled here, man and woman, the proverbial family where there's worth and words and work. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would help us to never look at a text like this and say, this is what everybody else needs to be. This is the standard I've set for other people in my life. No, God, would you give us the humility and the wisdom to know that what's described here is for us. That this is a life of wisdom you call us to. And help us to be faithful. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.